Well, good morning. How you guys doing? Good? All right. I hope you know sometimes when we sing some songs in the morning, they have a little bit of a selfish intention. That last song that we sang has kind of been a song that's been on my heart uh, this last week as I've been studying and thinking about those words and thinking about spending some quiet time with God and thinking about those things of, I want to know you more, I want to see your face, I want to touch you, right? These, these things that we are singing to God, and I think sometimes we can kind of try to over-spiritualize those kind of things in some sort of uh, metaphysical experience or whatever it is, but for some reason my, reason, my mind just kept coming back to this idea that I can do all of those things as I study this. And to me, it was just such a great reminder that I don't have to think like, oh, one day I get to know who Jesus is. Or one day I get to see his face. Or one day I get to hear his voice. The thing is, is his voice is all over these pages. And to me, thinking about preparing my heart for even talking this morning and going through this sermon, I, was, I wanted my heart to remind myself that these are the word of, words of God that are being spoken to us, driving us and pointing us to our lives focused on God. And, and just what a beautiful reminder that is. So just so you guys know, that's, there's intentionality behind a lot of those things. So another thing I want to get into real quick before I really dive into this passage is, as Kelly was talking about, and as we've kind of been hearing, the Advent season is coming up. Now, this year at the Mountain Church, we are going to do something a little different. We are actually going to pause and do like an Advent series. We've never done that before. So if you've been with us for the life, it's just whatever book we're going through, we just continue going through it, right? And I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but this year we tried to plan it so that we were going to stop. So what I'm going to do is I'm making an announcement, essentially, and I want you to encourage you guys. If you guys have people that you know that might be interested in coming to church or, or being a part of the Sunday morning fel- uh, gathering or anything like that, you can tell them that starting December 1st, we are going to start an Advent series. And what we are going to be doing is, I think there is, yep, there's a slide up here that talks about Advent, the fulfillment of Scripture. So we are going to be taking a little different look, and instead of looking at the, the classic Christmas story through the New Testament, what we are going to do is we are going to go back to the Old Testament, and we are going to look at passages of Scripture that show just who Jesus is and how he was to come so that we get to see how Jesus fulfilled the prophecies that were in Scripture. That makes sense to you guys? I'm really excited. I don't know about you guys. We put Nathan in charge, and Nathan usually does a great job of setting these things up. So I'm really excited about where he goes with it. So, um, but no, I, I'm just, like, we, we talked about it. We mapped out all the passages. So I'm really excited about this. So if you have anybody who is curious, and it's great because if they're curious about who Jesus is, was he who he said he was? This is going to really point towards that, and we're giving the biblical defense for Jesus being who he said he was. So we're really excited about that, and that is going to be what we transition into in, or on December 1st. So that means we only have a few more weeks of going through 1 Samuel, and then we're going to put a little pause on that. So sound good? Awesome. All right. Now moving forward, let's go ahead and open our Bibles up to 1 Samuel. Now, we are in 1 Samuel 10, kind of where we left off last week. Daniel was so gracious to take that huge piece of scripture, so I only had to preach 10 verses. 
Um, I don't know if you guys remember, Daniel covered most of, or all of nine and half of ten, right? And where did it leave off? We know that Saul was anointed by Samuel as king, right? And so we're kind of at this place where we are waiting for um, Saul to take the throne. That's kind of the, the best way to really put it. Saul's got a, he's been anointed, but there's no real like coronation ceremony. There's nothing that really says, hey, everybody in Israel, Saul's your king, let's keep going. So we're kind of, we're left hanging there and we kind of get to see a little bit of Saul's characteristics shine through right away. So I want us to make sure we understand that the first thing that he does is when he comes back and he talks to his uncle, if you guys are looking back at verse 16, so just kind of going back with what Daniel went over last week, is that we are left off at this place where Saul's been anointed, and then he goes home and he gets questioned about where he was, and he doesn't say a single thing about it. He doesn't talk about being anointed as king. He's kind of like, eh. And I think it really leaves us hanging is what is Saul's intentions in not talking about this? Is he humble? Is he like still in shock? Does he not believe? Any of these kind of things. And I think the next, uh, this piece of scripture that we're going to go through is really going to shed light on who Saul really is. And then we're going to talk about the bigger picture because I don't think we can negate where Saul goes after this. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. So let's go ahead and let's jump in on verse 17. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. So we're going to stop right there. Already there's something that's interesting here. Mizpah. If we don't remember, we actually talked about Mizpah in the book of Judges. And what happened in the book of Judges is there was this terrible thing that happened at the end of the book. And like the rest, all the tribes of Israel were like, yo, what the tribe of Benjamin did was wrong and it was bad. And we're going to wipe them off. Like we're going to get rid of them. We're going to exterminate them. Right. And they go to like, they go to battle with them and everything that happens at Mizpah. And so I think it's really interesting for us to, to know that because what is actually happening here is we have this place where, where Benjamin is supposed to be wiped out, and then most of us know and we understand that Saul is actually from what tribe? Benjamin. So it's kind of, I don't want to use the word ironic because obviously God is, is doing something here, but we can all see it that it's like, wow, this is kind of crazy, right? God has called his people together at Mizpah, this place where he was going to exterminate, like where the Israelites wanted to get rid of Benjamin, and he's going to put a Benjaminite over them. And so it's just like, you can't think that that was missed on the people of Israel, right? They know their history. We know our history, right? When we think about, we learn about it in school. We know what happened. We know all about the revolution. We know all these kind of things. The people of Israel knew their history. So when they go to Mizpah, they know what, they know what went down there. And it's really interesting that that's where he would call them to. So now the next thing he says in verse 18, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. I want us to stop there now again, because there's a very important, there's two things that happen here already. This, this is what's so awesome about this passage in the Old Testament, is it's so rich. So here, the first thing that happens is when these words are kind of spoken, it's not some sort of magical thing that happens, but I want us to understand that Samuel is like changing roles here. Because up until this point, he's been serving as a priest. And he's been, he's been you know, he's an in-between intercessory for the people and doing these kind of things. And he's been trying to guide them in those ways. And some of us see him maybe as a judge as well, because he was judging over Israel. But this is the part, and this is the time of the story, where we get to see Samuel switches over to being a prophet. 
he starts to talk and do the things that we see in the books of the prophets, and he starts to talk about them because he starts to bring warnings to the people of Israel. He starts to show them like where their, their mishaps are, are coming. And then it's really important for us to understand that the way, just even that language, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, he is using the exact same language that was used when they got their original commandments on Mount Sinai. So he's now, right now, drawing attention back to saying, listen, this is the exact same thing. Thus says the Lord your God, right? He is pointing them back and saying, look, and it's supposed to show us. Then he says, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. Saul is sh- or, uh, excuse me, Samuel is showing them right now that they have failed the first commandment. God is not at the top of their list. And he is pointing that out to them. Like I said, y'all remember Mount Sinai. You remember what happened there. Let me show you exactly what is happening here. And so he starts pointing that out. And so I just think it's awesome that he is starting to tie this in. Even Samuel is going back to scriptures to show us God. He says, but today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by tribes and by your thousands. So he pronounces essentially a judgment over them, right? Hey, y'all are not honoring God in the way he's supposed to. You're asking for a king. You're forgetting all the things that God has done for you. So now what we're going to do, come forward. I don't know about you guys, but have you ever been in a, in a classroom setting before and you're messing around and then all of a sudden the teacher's like, come here. And like the whole class like does that, right? And you're like, oh man. And you start to walk forward. You know what's happening, right? You know that the teacher is not going to give you a prize for what you were doing. That's what's happening here. And we have to see that, that, that Samuel is standing over the people. He is talking to them, reminding them how they just failed God and then says, all right, step forward. The people have to know what's coming. But the problem is, is I think we see a blindness here. They don't, or they don't want to see what's coming, or they don't want to believe it. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of Matrites was taken by Lot, and Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So a couple of things that we want to see here when we think about taking lots or casting lots, there's, there's two things that need to be uh, pointed out as we, as we go through this. Is first of all, by taking lots, we understand that this was by divine intercession that Saul is going to be king. So there was no human um, input. There was no uh, some sort of, you know, political backstabbing or anything that happens in like our day and age. It was pretty clear lots were taken. So that way we understand that it was through God and through God alone that Saul was going to be anointed king. But it's also important for us to remember that this is also a way of judgment, over Israel. 
And the reason I want to say that is there's one other time in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, where we see that clans were lined, or where they were lined up by their tribes and clans and people like this to get down to one person. And that story is all the way back in Joshua. And so if you want to go back and look at that sometime, I highly recommend you do. But essentially in Joshua 7, I believe it is, in Joshua 7, you have the Israelite army destroying a nation, and they are told to not keep anything. Don't keep anything. Don't like stuff that's been given over to like idols and those kind of things. Don't keep it because it's, it's, you're not putting God first. That's essentially what the, the whole idea behind that was. And then what happened? Israel starts to lose and they're like, wait, what's going on? How come? And so then they finally ask the Lord and the Lord says, hey, somebody took something that's been sacrificed or that's been offered up. And as long as that's there. So what do they do? Nobody comes forward, so what, they bring him forward, they start casting lots, and they get down to a guy, and when they get down to that guy, what's he got? Something that's been offered up or something that's been an idol that's been, you know, given over. And he goes, you know, and that's what's causing them this grief. So it led to a place of judgment over that person. So I think it's, we need to remember that as we look through scriptures, as we, you know, even our second question talks about there being a meta-narrative through scriptures. This is what this is supposed to point us to. Again, as we say, they would know their scriptures. They would understand the history that's going on. So this is the only other time. So when we look at this, we remember that it's because they're not obeying, because they want to put a king over them, that lots are going to be cast to come down to one person. So in reality, instead of thinking like this positive message of Saul being king, I want us to start getting in the mindset that Saul was the judgment for Israel. Israel got what they wanted. And just because God anointed the king does not mean he was going to be a good king. We have to understand that. Just like we see in today, and we've studied this through scriptures before, God has put leaders in positions, and it's, it's not our job to understand why, but it's our job to know that God is in control. So as we see this, that, that's really what this starts pointing us to. Now, also, quick, quick note that is, is kind of interesting, too. You notice divination, so this idea that God was moving in this place, was never used to decide if they should have a king or not. The people made that decision up on their own. And now they're like, okay, now let's go to God and see who it's supposed to be. So they kind of like thought that they could kind of put God in a corner. You know, maybe they still felt like they did, but the reality is, is God had a plan. So now when we get to this place and Saul is, is taken by Lot and they sought him and he could not be found, they inquired again of the Lord. Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. <laughs> this line makes me laugh all the time because I just, I don't know. I don't know about you guys. I just, I can't help but think about what this would look like. You know, like all the bags stacked up for all these people in Israel. And here's Saul just tucked away behind all this baggage. I don't know what he's doing, snacking on something, hiding, talking to his like best friend. I don't know what was going on here, but he's hiding among the baggage. And we're going to come back to that piece because I think this is important. Then they ran and took him from there. I think it's important that we understand that they took him, right? He didn't come up and go, all right, guys, you found me, right? It wasn't a game of hide and seek. Saul was hiding. He's among the baggage, and they had to take him from there. 
And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. Important phrase there. That's only a phrase to you that was used in scripture and in history uh, to describe somebody who was out of the covenant of God. If you go back and look through any like times that that phrase that he was like a head taller is never used for anybody that is under the covenant of God. So it's supposed to be showing us an image here. There is something that is wrong with just this whole situation. He's hiding. He has to be brought forward. He's described in a way that is not used to describe people under the covenant. But it's interesting because all these things are happening and the people are not seeing this. And we see what happens. And Samuel said to the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. I think it's interesting that we point out he's nothing like the rest of the people. Notice he's not elevated to any sort of supernatural status or anything that makes him better than anyone else. He's just not like the rest of the people. And I think people could interpret that as, yeah, because he's better, like God made him king. I think that we're supposed to look back to the previous statements and realize there's something, again, that is off. He is not like the rest of the people. And all the people shouted... Long live the king. I mean, what a crazy thing. You know, if we were standing up here and we're like, you know what? We need to decide somebody right now to lead this church. Let's just start drawing names out of a hat. And the first thing we pull out, we're like, hey, where's, I don't want to use a name because I don't want to like put anybody down, but where's so-and-so? Like, I don't know. And then all of a sudden we hear some like munching back there and we like slide open the curtains and somebody's back there eating the leftover communion crackers. (laughs) There he is. Long live our leader. Like, it doesn't make any sense, right? Like, doesn't that seem so weird that that is who they are like? God, good one. You got him. You nailed it. That's our leader. And it's just really interesting that that's what it points out here. And then Samuel told the people the rights and the duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. What we are to understand from that is that there, are, there were uh, laws given earlier about what a king should do and how a king should rule. But this, the way this is written is to lead us to believe and to show us that there was more given in the rights and responsibilities to Saul as king. And what we can assume, just knowing scriptures and what it is, is Saul was not supposed to look like the other kings. So his rights and responsibilities were not just assumed. Well, other kings live like this, so this is how you get to live. The idea was that, that God had given more clarification. Hey, listen, if somebody's going to rule over you, this is what it should look like so that they are ruling in a way that is honoring of God and still putting God at the kingship. Because a lot of the language that was used before this was talking about a prince, right? And so the idea is that even though we call him king, we want to view these men, these leaders as princes because they are really under the authority of God and they should be ruling out of the authority of God. So they have this book, and I think it's really interesting that this book just gets put away. That's the first thing that happens, right? So when we read that um, book and it was laid up before the Lord, so it gets put away and then we don't know what happened to it. But we do know that Saul does not live a life that really honors God. So then Samuel sent all the people away each to his home. 
Then this passage kind of ends in kind of a curious way. So Saul went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. So God, or you know, he places Saul as king. He puts it on these people's hearts. Hey, go serve with the king. Go be with him. But right away in verse 27, this is, this is one of my favorite parts. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held peace. So obviously the point of this message is politics is terrible, right? It ruins everything, right? When we think about America, right? No, but I want us to understand, though, that right away, when a human king is placed in charge, what did it cause? Instant division. Instant division when a king is placed at the head and not God. We can't overlook that. And this, this phrase, worthless fellows, is the same phrase that we saw used in Judges, right? This is not good people. And then there's this last piece of that passage that says, but he held his peace. Saul held his peace. I don't want us to walk away from here thinking that Saul was a humble guy. Because it's really easy to read this passage and be like, Saul was the bigger man, right? Some people talked bad about him. And he just, you know, turned the other cheek. It was good. We cannot look at this story in like a microcosm, just as this one little piece. We have to look at how Saul acts for like the rest of his life and what he does. And we're going to kind of dive into this a little bit more as we go throughout um, the three questions that we go to answer. But I think it's important that we understand, don't look at Saul as like the hero of this story or somebody to emulate. Like, let's just get rid of that thought right away. Saul had different intentions on like the stuff that he was doing. And I think that we get to see kind of a foreshadow of what's to come um, through this passage. So then the question is, let's go ahead and put up our three questions. We have three questions that we try to answer on a weekly basis as we go through the Old Testament as a church to help us better understand and how to study passages. Because as much as we went through this, and, and I can explain some of the background pieces here, that only takes us so far. The next piece is that we want to see how does this passage really start to apply to our lives, help us know God more, help us to see who he is, help us to process through his characteristics and how we get to live a life that is transformed by that. So when we look at this, we want to look at that first question. What does this story proclaim about God and his relationship with his people? Now, I'm going to be honest and vulnerable with you guys right now. I struggled with this question. I think I wanted to fight it. I wanted to have something different, or I wanted to have something that was revolutionary. I'm like, man, Daniel and, and Nathan have done such a great job with this over the last few weeks. Man, maybe I need to come up with something special so that I can like, keep up with them. And I've been really brought down to this level of humbleness where I don't, man, I don't even know if I belong up here today. I'm struggling, and, and it's, it's, it's great, though, to see how God continues to, to move in passages and, and open our eyes, because what I think here is it's not meant to be something revolutionary that we're supposed to see. What this passage shows is that God is in control. It's as simple as that. God is in control, and whether we like the outcome or don't like the outcome, he is in control. And God's blessings and his judgment are both him in control. And I think we see that played out really well in this story. The people get what they ask for. 
What an amazing blessing that we have a God who would give us what we ask for. The problem is, is what are our hearts really asking for? Do we know what our hearts are really asking for? I was reading this book um, with some guys, and it's called You Are What You Love. And he talks about this movie that he saw one time, and I don't remember the name. It was like a foreign film or something. But the idea was that there was these two guys that were being uh, told that they were going to be taken to a room and they were like, when they entered this room, the room would essentially be different for both of them because it would be given to their heart's desires. So what do you think happens? They're like, yes, that sounds great, right? And so the whole process of this movie is them building up to do it. And then they get to the door and then all of a sudden their natural reaction is to take a step back and go, and they start to come to this realization. What if I really don't know what my heart desires? What if I think I know, but the actions and like all the things that I do throughout life don't really point towards that? So is that really what my heart desires? And I think it's really interesting that as we think about this characteristic of God, God gives us what our heart desires. So what are we tuning our hearts towards? What are we showing that is a priority in our life? What are we living out of? And I think that that's what we see here with the people of Israel. Saul is just a representation of the people as we go on. He's just, he gets to be this main figure that just represents who the people of Israel are. People who want something and they want it their way and they don't want to really listen to God in the way that God is trying to lead them. Like we said, they didn't ask God if they should have a king. They decided they wanted a king and then they said, okay, now God, you can go ahead and choose him. That's backwards. It's not how it should be and that's not the way that it was ever set up or intended to be. So we have to continue to remind ourselves that God is in ultimate control of situations. And just because things or we are able to do things or we get things that we might ask for, it doesn't always make them good. You guys following with me on that? So then I want to go into... This, how does this story connect to the Bible's larger story or meta narrative? Now, I'm trying to find the best way that I can say this. I want us to remember that the meta narrative of the story points to Jesus, but it's also not all like that's the biggest part, but there are parts of Scripture that are supposed to point us to other parts of Scripture. Right? So we're supposed to be able to see kind of like this pattern that flows throughout and to kind of see what happens. So what I want to do is I want to point, when we talk about the meta-narrative today, I want to talk about the king that is following Saul. And the king that follows Saul is David. Now, here's the deal. We're not going to go through like King David stuff until next fall. So I feel like I can, I can like creep in on somebody else's sermon today because that won't happen for another year. So... Um, so we're going to kind of creep in on somebody else's sermon. And what I really want to focus in on is when we saw Saul's calling, the first thing that Saul did was he hid where? In the baggage. And then when he was called, what did he do? He sat there and people had to take him out. They had to find him and pull him out, right? And then he gets dragged over there and then people start talking bad about him and he ignores it. And we have to remember, this is the anointed king that God put over them, and he, people talk bad about him. So really, you're bad-mouthing what God has done, and they just go, yeah, it's all good. Don't worry about it. And they just move on. 
Well, what happens later, and I think what's awesome is we point to this story, flash forward to 1 Samuel 17. So if you guys want to go there, go ahead. Maybe you guys can check my facts. This will be good. It'll be really humbling. Okay, so in 1 Samuel 17, um, we see that there's a battle with the Philistines going on, right? And they're kind of like at this stalemate because there's this dude named Goliath that is standing out front, right? And what's he doing? He's calling out the Israelites. You guys are nothing. You're worthless. Come at me. See what happens, right? And what are the Israelites doing? They're acting like Saul. They're not, they're not addressing it. They're just letting it be. They don't know what to do. They're like, man, this guy's too much. Like, we can't handle this. I don't know what I'm going to do, so we're just going to stand pat. But then we see this David figure come in, and his, his father sends him to the front lines. And I love this piece because I don't think it's by coincidence that it talks about it. He gets up there, and he sees what's going on, and the first thing he does is he turns around, and it says he leaves the baggage. It literally says that. He leaves the baggage with somebody else, and he starts going up towards the front line. Quite the contrast to what we see as Saul as he's anointed king, right? David takes off running, and it says he takes off running to be with his brothers. He wants to go stand side by side with them. So not only does he not have to be, you know, found in the baggage, he doesn't have to be taken away from there. He heads towards where it is. And then as he gets there, I'm going to paraphrase. This is the William paraphrased version, right? He gets there. He sees this big dude mocking the army of Israel. And what does he do? Hey, what are you all doing? You can't let him mock God like this. This is not okay. Something needs to be done. And I, like, I'll do it. And what do the people of Israel do? Take him to the king. I guess if he wants to do it, go for it. Right? And Saul allows him, tries to give him armor, tries to send him out there. Instead of Saul going, man, you're leading the correct way. I need to do this. This should probably be my responsibility as king. I'm supposed to be leading our people. He goes, yeah, go ahead. He passes that off. And I think it's important for us to understand that right away we see the difference between David and we see the difference between Saul. When we look at the two of them, it is very clear why scriptures tell us that David was a man after God's own heart. God was showing us what it was going to look like to have a savior one day come and fulfill that role even better, to fulfill that role perfectly in Jesus. The hope that we have in Jesus, the way Jesus lived, the way Jesus served God gives us strength to be able to serve in that same way. We get to see in David a character who was a man after God's own heart, but fell time and time again, but continued to persevere, continued to chase after getting to know God more. We get to look at David and see the hope that as we are called into the royal priesthood, that are we, we are called heirs with Jesus, that even though we stumble, even though we fall, even though we make mistakes as David did, God still used him because his passion, his heart was that after God's. David did not hide in the baggage. He did not run from his family. 
He did not run from his calling. He responded to that. So I think that leads us to our question three then. What admonition or exhortation does this story offer? I think the first thing you have to ask yourself is, are you hiding in the baggage? I know I have to ask myself that all the time. Am I hiding in the baggage? What does that mean to be hiding in the baggage? How do I apply that to my life? Well, first and foremost, are you living the way God has called you to live? Are you practicing obedience? There are spiritual disciplines that we need to be practicing. And a lot of us right away, I, I know, and I'm going to guarantee right now, half, like probably about half of us are thinking, man, those obedience, spiritual disciplines, we're getting really close to legalism. False. False. Wipe that lie from your, your head right now. Erase that. It was not legalism for Jesus to follow all the, the commandments of God. So it's not for you either. There are spiritual disciplines. There are things in our lives that we can be applying that, that will get us out of the baggage and into a life that is like David's running towards what we are supposed to be doing. And yeah, just like David, we're going to trip and fall. That's okay. That's all right. But the idea is that we continue to chase after that. What does that look practically for, for us in some of our, in our walk, in our ways? I think just different things. If you are not hiding in the baggage, if you are a person who is running opposite of what Saul did, you are, there's, there's going to be contrast in your life. Let me, let me just point out a couple practical ones, and hopefully you guys can start to see other areas where this per permeates. Let's start with learning. I've been really convicted of this over the last couple weeks. Are you accidentally learning or are you intentional in your learning? Because if you are accidentally learning, you're hiding in the baggage. That's really what's happening. And a lot of you are going, what's the difference? Well, I'm going to tell you what the difference is. If you come here on Sunday and hope to just catch a snippet, some one-line thing that I'm going to say or that Daniel's going to say or that Nathan is going to say and just go, oh, that was good, and then move on throughout your week, you're accidentally learning. You're hearing a couple good things, but okay. What does that mean? Right? That's accidental learning. What is intentional learning then? Intentional learning looks like what uh, uh, Tabidi, uh, a pastor in, in uh, he's in Washington, D.C. right now, right? Virginia somewhere. Yeah, somewhere over there on the East Coast, right? It all blends together. Um, he's somewhere over there, okay? One of the first things he talks about in a book that he wrote is how to be a healthy church member is he says the first thing you have to do is be an expositional listener. What does that include? Well, you come ready to know what is in God's word. What does that look like? You've studied this scripture beforehand. Most of you should, when I preach this or when Daniel preaches something or when Nathan preaches something, you should know what's happening in the story. You should know where the story is going. And you should probably already start to be able to start to see where we're going to go with these passages. And that you would be familiarizing yourself, intentionally going through something, so that that way when you came here, you were ready to pick up on any additional information that you could pull. Because you're hungry and you're thirsting for that. You're not just looking for that little passing comment that's going to make, like, somehow change your life. Because if that's what you're waiting for, I'm just going to tell you right now, it's not going to come. It's not going to come. 
You have to be in God's word. You have to be studying. You have to be intentional with the things that you are doing. If you are waiting for the three of us to give you some sort of thing that's going to be life-changing, I'm going to tell you right now, we're going to fail at that. Because we just are the, we're just preaching what is in here. This and what the Holy Spirit is do in, doing in you is changing you. Not me. And if you're waiting for me to do that, then, <laughs> um, yeah, you got, you're going to be waiting a while. So practically, what does this look like? Be intentional learners. Study God's word. Come here ready to pull out any excess information that we can. Don't just come here and hope to get something in passing or wait for your friend to read a good book and just send you a quote and be like, now I have that one in the bank. I'll just use that as a quote when I need it. Daniel talked about this uh, previously, right? That, That our belief, our faith is not just a little snippet on Facebook that's just supposed to be something that clicks with us. It's constant devotion to God's word, to the disciplines of following him. What also does this look like practically? Here's what it looks like practically. Your leaders should not have to take you and pull you from the baggage. We should not have to do that. We want to encourage you guys and and really try to drive you guys to be like David, where you hear God's word and you want to run in response to it. Not be pulled, kicking and screaming and saying, it's hard. It's really hard. That's like one of my least favorite phrases. It's hard. You're darn right it's hard. Scripture says it's going to be hard. It's hard for all of us. Don't look for sympathy from me. <laughs> I'm walking this with you. It's difficult. But that doesn't excuse us. Ignorance does not get us out of what God calls us to do. That's not in the Bible. Follow all my commands, but if you just don't read this, then you don't know, so don't follow. But that's what we live like a lot of times. I know I do. Yeah, I'm not going to read through the Beatitudes because I don't really want to have patience and I don't want to love people. So I just won't read over that right now, and then I'll just plead ignorance at the end. I don't think when I'm standing in front of God on judgment day that that's what he's going to say. You forgot to read the Gospels. That's all right. You're good. He's going to say, why didn't you seek after me? Like I said, going back to that song before, if you wanted to know me, if you wanted to chase after me, if you wanted to see my face, hear my voice, you had it in your hand the entire time. You had all the resources to run towards God, yet you hid yourself in the baggage. And what do we call our baggage? A lot of things. Work, family, right? Those are the two biggest ones, work and family. That's our baggage. Oh, I got things I need to take care of. All these other things get in the way, right? If, we're, if we say our schedule's too busy to meet with somebody or have somebody over for dinner, let me ask you a question. If we were to be like Christ, is that really how Christ lived his life? Is that what he told people all the time? Too busy, sorry, can't meet with you. Nope, too busy, can't stop and preach. Nope, too busy, like can't do any of these kind of things. He said, no, come follow me. I'll show you how to do this. Everything, everything's intentional. So like I said, don't make your leaders have to pull you out of the baggage. Don't make your 
family members or other people who are encouraging you in Christ have to pull you from the baggage. Now, don't get us wrong. If you're kicking and screaming, I'm a big dude. I'm going to pull you out, okay? I'm going to at least try. I'm not going to go down without a fight. But ultimately, I can't actually pull you out of that baggage. I can show you what it looks like. We can try and model this for you. But you ultimately need to make that decision to allow to God work, to have God work through you to give you the strength to stand up and answer your calling like Saul should have. The calling that we see David answer and ultimately the call that we saw Jesus answer when God sent him to die. He did not run from that call. He was obedient. So what I'm going to say is kind of in closing, I know a lot of you guys, Nathan kind of already talked about this, but I'm going to point out again this book, How Do We Serve Our Families? So for those of you who have families, family worship, what does it look like to honor God in the daily stuff, right, and with our families? This is a good book, but the other one I'm really going to highly recommend, and I suggest you stop everything you are reading right now and you read this book. I'm not lying. And I'm not, this is not just like here, you know, just trying to say like, uh, it's good, like this is good. Um, I'd write this down, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life from Donald S. Whitney. If you want to talk about a book that has nothing but scriptures pointing you to what the spiritual disciplines are, how to live your life so that you're not hidden in the baggage, this book, again, you need to stop what you are reading right now, except for the Bible, please, please keep reading that. Okay, read that and read this. And you will see what God's call for your life is, right? If you're having trouble seeing that and you're having trouble to say, it's just so overwhelming. There's so many scriptures and I'm trying to like figure this out. He's going to pull out some scriptures for you and he's going to pull out some practical things. What I love about this book is he just gives you some, like, here's what you can do. Here's how you can do it. Here's like five different ways you can do it. And he really spells it out for you. And so I just want to make sure that I, I, I promote this because I want us to understand that as a church, as leadership, we don't want this congregation hiding in the baggage. Uh, spiritual disciplines for the Christian life by Donald S. Whitney. Brothers and sisters, I hope you guys are encouraged by this passage. I hope you guys are encouraged by the fact that we have a God who loves us enough to give us what we desire but that same God can also change our hearts to desire him. And that's what we need to start leaning into, changing our hearts' desires to seek after God, to seek after Christ, to see him as the only true king that is worthy of praise, that is worthy of honor, that is worthy of ruling over our lives. And we cannot move on from that. So we have to continually work at it. And it's hard, but if God is leading the way, it's so much easier. So much easier. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you so much for your kingship. Father, we thank you for these stories in the Bible that you tell us, that you show us, that remind us how in control you really are. Father, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to die for us. 
to save us from our sins, to save us from our calamities, because, Father, we see that left to our own device, we leave you out of the decision-making process. Father, so frequently, I know for myself, I forget to include you on decisions and then wonder why you're not moving. Father, I forget to include you in decisions and then don't like the outcome. Father, or something goes wrong and I, I want to blame you. Father, I confess that to you. Father, I pray that as a congregation, as a people devoted to you, that we look, that you anointed your son to be king, to rule over. Father, I pray that we see his kingship, we see his headship, and we see the joy that comes in obedience to him. Father, he is not a, you are not a God who is oppressive, who is looking after destroying um, his creation. But Father, you are looking at renewing it. Father, you have a heart, a passion for your people who you created. And Father, I pray that we get to live out of that, that we see the joy that comes through serving you as king. Father, and we look for that reign and that rule that points forward to an eternity when we get to eternally worship you perfectly as king. Father, we love you and we thank you. Praise your name. Amen.